When you live to ticket before you kick it, it's pretty important that you power your adventure with the right nutrition. Not just when you decide to take on the biggest physical and mental challenge of your life, like I did retracing the 1928 Tour de France, but also as a part of everyday living. Working overtime on a double shift, running the kids all over town to their sporting events, adding a few extra miles to your weekly hike, or getting sleep deprived with a hectic travel schedule. I'm proud to announce Bucket Nutrition is now an official sponsor of our podcast and just for you, giving a 10% discount on all Bucket Nutritional products. Go to Amazon.com and use promo code Bucket10, that's Bucket with an IT, 10, for a 10% discount on Bucket Nutritional products. Great tasting, high performance nutrition to help you take it before you kick it. This is part two of my interview with the voice of sports, Jim Nance. Jim recalls the game-changing moment in the Final Four College Basketball Championship between Villanova and North Carolina. The excitement of calling the Super Bowl alongside former Dallas Cowboy quarterback Tony Romo and many more stories from the hottest seat in the house, the announcer's booth. I knew I couldn't go back. You just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. Just dug even deeper. Luck is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so why couldn't I? That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Kogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. The guy who's lucky is the guy who goes down you know, to the convenience store and plays the lottery game, scratches off the ticket. He's won a million dollars. That's luck. Fortune, being fortunate, is the, is the convergence of a whole lot of effort and skill level and lifetime experiences and opportunity presenting itself and making the most of that opportunity. Jim Nance, a voice virtually all sporting fans in America recognize, is a five-time National Sportscaster of the Year and three-time Emmy Award winner. He's the youngest broadcaster ever recognized by both the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame and the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Since the 1980s, Jim's been calling the Masters, the Super Bowl, and NCAA's March Madness, sharing his passion for sport with that distinctive, soothing voice, to become arguably one of the best commentators in the business. I was lucky enough to catch up with Jim between his announcing duties to get a first-hand account of what it's like to call some of the greatest moments in sports history. Have you ever called something and been so caught up in the moment of calling it that you're not even aware that this is one of the great moments in sport, that you're just so caught up with calling what's happening and then you kind of get on the other side of it and you think, oh my God, what did we just witness? Yeah, <laughs> that happens for sure. Yeah. Uh, that, that, I mean, I, I can think, oh, again, for your worldwide audience, we have a thing over here called the Final Four yes. college basketball. And I've, I've been a part of broadcasting that now 34 <clears throat> years. We had a championship game a few years ago that came down to a last second long yes. three-point shot. Uh, and Chris Jenkins made it for Villanova to beat North Carolina. And that moment coming down the court, a pass being made, back to Jenkins and puts up the shot and it goes in. All that took place in 4.6 seconds. It felt like it was four minutes. Um, it felt like it was playing out in slow motion in my mind. Totally felt unrushed, but I felt excited and in control of it, working with Bill Raftery and Grant Hill, my, my analysts. And we were able to even 
jump in, all of us get into that little tiny window yeah. of four and a half seconds and say something. And the call was there as the ball left his hands. Yeah. And it was all happening in slow motion. I'm not sure early in my career if I would have been that calm about it. You know, not, not calm in the call or the excitability of the call. It's just in the handling of getting the ball up court and then the ball going through the hoop and how you put an exclamation that point moment, on it. Because just, bef just before uh, North Carolina scores and there's a cutaway of Michael Jordan in his North Carolina outfit, right? And he's cheering. Good for you. And Good for you. He was in the building. Right. Yes. And, and he's cheering. And the game was over. It was done. It was like, okay, this is, you know, they got it. And then somehow Villanova comes back. I was like, what? You know, how did this happen? And it felt so uh, rewarding to be a part of that broadcast team. Yeah. The whole production, Mark Wolf, Bob Fishman, and how they captured all of, uh, of, of that that was inside, inside that stadium down in Houston. And again, a lot of experience, 30 year plus veterans in, in the most important seats in the truck. And, you know, all around that building, and, and our, our our camera crew all scattered around. Everybody had been through thousands of games, and now you get a championship game comes down to one shot. It felt so easy. Everybody was so on top of it. It, it was a rich moment. And you walk off the floor and say, "Your point? What? What just happened? Yeah, I can't get my mind around it. You know? Yeah, it's too big. Uh, I feel that a lot, and you know, golf gives you that occasion." Well, golf, to me, it amazes me what you find, you know, anything can happen, but just to, you've got so much time to fill in. And I often think, what's going through your mind as you're, do you make like, no, I mean, how do you fill that time? It's a lot of time. Talk from right here. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to be reading anything. Talk right from my heart. What I feel at the moment. You're going to be able to relate to it. I can tell because so many things we kind of see it the same way as broadcasters. I tell people that when I broadcast golf, it's a feel sport. And they're mm. like, what? What are you talking about? Uh, there's a mood, there's a pitch of your voice, there's a way you kind of just feel like you're flowing with the vibe that's being emitted you know, off that screen. Sense of occasion. It is a sense of occasion. It's blending your voice with the, the energy when a shot is made or dropping it when there's just dead silence. And it's not being uh, artificial. It's not trying to create some sort of false or synthetic drama. It's it's just feeling it. I, I look. I have a deep love affair with the game, and I find it to be in some ways uh, the best sport to broadcast. Many ways. You talked about the long stretches. When, it's that calming voice of yours. That's what it is. It's it's like the voice. Uh, you'd be you'd be. I don't know why people say that, but but I'm you'd be really did. good at just calming people down. You know, like put somebody in a green room and listen to Jim Nance's. <laughs> oh, I get commentary. You know, I get all the time. Is just I take a nap with you every week. You put me to sleep on my couch. Thank you for that. <laughs> I think that's a compliment. I'm not sure. Well, no, because it's it's you're easy to listen to. Yeah. I thought maybe I just, it's just not interesting to listen to. Yeah, that could be that too. No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not going to take that for granted. But, but you have these colors in the different sports. Like, you know, you yeah. set a different tone in, yeah. in, when you're in the, 
in a uh, basketball stadium for the Final Four. There's a different energy no in that question. room. No question. There's an energy wave that you don't see. Right. There's a inside that building, and that that you got to know where to pitch noise. yourself. You have to take your voice just above it. Yeah. Not down here, because then you get drowned out, and not here, because you're going to sound false. Right. And then you when you're in Augusta, the wind is blowing through the trees, and you can hear, and the and, and the Augusta melody is playing. Yeah. That and so you have soft to just little. This orchestration like that's it. been around since the 70s yeah you know and you want to again blend your voice in just right you've with got that. it you got to mix it feel it you're like a musician you, in a you way you want to mix it yeah you want to don't do your own audio mix yes of your levels my voice goes to where it's supposed to go mm-hmm. i come off the final four they play inside of dome stadiums Seventy thousand people in the building fevered pitch you're calling it, you're pushing your voice, and you know, the shot, yes! Yeah. It has to be even pushed harder than that. Yeah. I blow out this microphone if I really had to do it for <laughs> I got real. You. Okay? I got to. But there's no crowd noise inside our studio <laughs> yeah. here in, uh, in California. But then you go to Augusta, three days later you're on the air, and Phil Mickelson now for birdie. Oh, come on, hey. you can't hey. be the same. How do you do that? Yeah. Well, it's kind of an easy one. If you were in the stands on Monday night watching the championship game and you're talking to your best friend next yeah. to you, for, for you to be heard, you would be right in his ear saying, can you believe that shot? <laughs> now, you wouldn't, as a fan, now you got the ticket to go down to Augusta. Yeah, you wouldn't standing be standing in the there as, as Tiger's over a five-footer saying, you think he's going to make this putt? <laughs> You'd lean over and say, what do you think? Yeah. Is he, he going to make it? I mean, I mean, they're not trying to drop their voice for dramatic effect. Right. They're matching the moment. Yeah. That's all I do. I mean, I, just, I don't even think about it. I really I, don't. I love how you make it sound so simple. <laughs> <laughs> I remember on Amazing Race when we, when we did the first voiceover, I, I pitched my voice a certain way that I felt sounded natural and that would work with the show. And then it got mixed in with the music. And as soon as I heard it, the music and the energy and the cutting and the pace and everything. And then as soon as I heard it, I was like, I got to do it again. You didn't have enough energy in your voice. It came off to you. Too much, too, too over the top. Oh, yeah, you were the other way. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I, that, that if I tried to push it there, it was going to sound too much. Yeah. It wasn't going to sound real because like you, early on, I started in front of a camera at 19. And I was always told, just talk to one person. And so I was doing that. But what I realized was I had to go about 25% above where I felt it was comfortable. And I had to get that music in my ears. And I had to get the sound. Give me the sound effects. Give me the music. And then I'm going to I'm gonna find out where I, my voice blends into that. And in the beginning, you know, I, it was okay. But I've gotten even better because I'm, I used to be a musician. And absolutely, you've got to really be listening That's to how thing. you fit into that. Oh, I love it. You know? I can't discuss this with like 10 people. I mean, I never go there with a conversation about it. But well, that's something I'm constantly aware of. Yeah. Is that mix that's in your it's in your head yes. or headset or whatever. Um, and how you're able to work it yeah. in concert in perfect symmetry with the music. It's going to take you there. I'll tell you another interesting thing to play off of is the guy that's sitting next to you in, in my world, Tony Romo. Yeah, by the way, who's just your a, new BFF. And I love you guys together. Thank you, I Phil. mean, how, how satisfying for you to sit next to somebody who you genuinely, you can tell, you genuinely care about. I love the guy. I mean, you're, you're like, he's like the rookie and you're, rookie <laughs> broadcaster and you're like this experience. And the, the two of you guys 
it's one of the greatest joys of my career. Magic. I'm not going to kid you. Yeah. It's been so rewarding. We embark now on our third season together. And the cool thing is, is that Tony was a friend for years before the arranged marriage, so to speak, by CBS. When you are assigned to a new basketball yeah. team, I mean, I don't usually have a say in that. I'm not asking for it. It's not my job. I mean, I, people that, you know, Sean McManus, David Burson, uh, they've done a fantastic job of shaping CBS into uh, the juggernaut that it is today as a sports division. And uh, a lot of times you work with someone and you're just getting to know them for the first time. Yeah. You may have casually met somewhere along the way. But now in this case, Tony was a friend for years. So when we got put into the booth together, I didn't have a strange, awkward, getting to know you kind of a period yeah. to go through. It's like you sitting down with your friend. I'm sitting over with my buddy yeah. who I've hung out with. He's come to the Final Fours. We've hung out at Final Fours. He's been out to Pebble Beach. and You like each other. Together. We have a great time. Our wives yeah. are, are, are wonderful friends. Our kids are, are my youngest kids are close in age to, yeah. to, his, to his three. And um, every week, it's just amazing. It comes across on how screen. fortunate we are to have a lot of the same interests. Yes, and you get to sit there with him. Very fortunate. And you how know, does he I, read the game? By the way, the way he does it. Well, it gets back to what you said a minute ago. Yeah, you were talking about in the Being chaos in and you know your instincts tell you to throw it long, whatever. How the great ones know how to handle that moment. It does come with experience. Yeah. And Tony's preparation as a player, studying on film, the NFL game, he'll tell you that as he got later in his career, although he got really held back because of injuries, career-ending injuries at the end, uh, lost three of his last four years because of injury. He, when he was able to play, reading the defense, get up to the line of scrimmage, he could instantly see, I've got to go right there with the football. I'm going to mm-hmm. hit this guy in a slot. Okay. And he could call it to the line. He said it was easy. Early in the career, he just, as all young quarterbacks do, they have the growing process. So when Tony's in the booth and he's foreshadowing the play. Crazy. Some of the things he's. Amazing. But I'll give you a good one here. He's going to look more like Romo Stradamos, which is what I've dubbed him, when he's got a, an experienced quarterback on the field. Because when we got a Tom Brady game, take the AFC Championship when New England, Kansas City played this fast-paced, breakneck, scoring up and down the field, overtime thriller to go to the Super Bowl, New England winning in Kansas City. Brady and Romo were in perfect sync. Tony foreshadowed every key play in the fourth quarter in an overtime because he knew exactly, he saw exactly what, what Tom saw. Tom, just like Tony, all these years of experience, come up to the line, I got to go to Gronk. Got to go Gronk on a post. Tony would say, he's going to go to Gronk here on a post. He sees the same thing that Tom sees. So when we have a game, yeah, we got a young quarterback who doesn't know what he's doing, doesn't know the ball needs to go here, doesn't have that experience, that fast experience. Not that anybody's ever said this, but someone could say, well, it didn't seem like Tony was like, he wasn't 100% today. Like he, you know, he was, he, he was wrong a couple of times. He still was right 80% of the time. What happened to him today? No, no, no. You got to understand. Tony was right. The quarterback had it wrong. 
But Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, so he's, what's great about that is he can make the he could say, well, this is what he as an experienced quarterback, this is what he should be doing, and yeah, then he if does. he doesn't, then obviously it's like, well, that was a, you know probably the wrong play. We give him more credit too, though. So there have been experienced quarterbacks that have sat in a seat like that before, yeah. but who has ever articulated yes. the way that Tony has having Tony as a partner? I feel so lucky. Um, let me insert now another word: fortunate because I was making a speech and uh, this friend of mine said, I heard you talk about how lucky you are. He said, you're not lucky, you're fortunate. There is a big difference. I said, well, what, what's the difference? He says, the guy who's lucky is the guy who goes down you know, to the convenience store and plays the lottery game, scratches off the ticket, he's won a million dollars. That's luck. Fortune, being fortunate, is the, is the convergence of a whole lot of effort and skill level and lifetime experiences and opportunity presenting itself and making the most of that opportunity. You're fortunate. When you say you're lucky, you're not lucky. You've worked for what it is mm -hmm. that you had. I do though, I grapple with it sometimes because I have such a grateful heart. I feel blessed beyond belief. The opportunities I've had to live out the childhood dream and so whatever you want to call it, the good fortune is something that I'm mindful of 365 every single day of my life. The good fortune I have to be able to have the life, the career uh, that I have uh, is not anything I ever will take for granted. I mean, it just. It comes across. You know, it it you. comes across because we've all met those people who who lose themselves, then they start out with something that's special and unique about them as a broadcaster or maybe an actor or a, a, a standout creative person. And then somewhere along the line, they start believing their own BS. And um, it, they, it takes away, right? You can't hide where you are when you're calling hour after hour and you're calling a, a tournament, a golf tournament eventually people are going to figure out who you are they're going to they're going to tell whether it's you know whether you are speaking from the heart or not it's just going to come through well i hope authenticity you know it's an yeah. important word in everybody's life and know, genuine passion I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm interested because i know you called the the winter olympics at one point three right? times three yeah. times i was in a hosting role there i was in the studio for those oh okay yeah. i was i was yeah. I'm, I'm guess what i was interested in was have you ever called something that hasn't been a mainstream oh, yeah. sport early in my career I was 26 years old, three and a half years out of college. I got the ticket to the network, and uh, I got a lot of assignments that I had to be a quick study to to learn that these sports, whether it was um, speed skating or yeah. um, uh, did mogul skiing. I did polo. I might be getting my number of analysts mixed up, but I think it was somewhere around total sports I had called between tennis, boxing, whatever it might have been track and field, swimming and diving. I think it was somewhere around 49 different types of events that I've covered in my career. Thankfully, at this stage, I'm football, basketball, and golf. Yeah. But I had tennis for a while. I did nine U.S. Opens. Yeah, the U.S. Open. And I gotta tell you, I felt out of my element there. And I didn't if like CBS that feeling. If CBS gets it back, would you wanna go back? I would not wanna go no. back. I don't wanna do anything. Well, you don't uh, feel like I don't you're on feel top. like I can talk expertly about it. Mm. I don't think it's authentic. I understand why I had to do it early in my career. But, you know, sometimes, have you ever heard, uh, a, take my role, the play-by-play -play host kind of role, and then a guy decides oh, he's going to go give 
at his best shot at a sport yeah. he hasn't done before. And it doesn't sound believable. You're not buying him in that arena. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. I'll give you an example for me. I, I called a baseball game one time. It was 1988 for the network. And it was an old-timers baseball game. They were starting this series called the Cracker Jack Old-Timers Game. They'd bring back the... Bring back... Bring back Reggie Willie Jackson. Mays. Or, yeah. Willie Mays. Hank Aaron Mays. played in this game. All right? I mean, I'm talking 1988. It oh, was sorry. Amazing. I guess Reggie Jackson Yeah, I mean, still... Bob Feller. We had all these guys in this game. Yeah. And uh, I called it. I was the host and the lead play-by-play guy with Bill White, who was a legendary broadcaster, player, executive in baseball. He's gone now. And Mel Allen, who would be on the Mount Rushmore of all-time baseball announcers, longtime Yankee announcer. And me, I'm not even 30 years old. And that was enough for me to know I could never do again. Now, I love baseball. I mean, I, I root for the Houston Astros. That's my team. And I watch baseball. But I haven't had enough experience to be able to have that lexicon yeah. where people would believe me. They would say I'm an outsider. We had baseball come to the network a few years after that. And I was told they wanted a role for me as either the host or maybe as a number two play-by-play guy on our baseball package. And I begged off of it. It's the first time in my career because I'm still kind of early in my career. This was 90, 91, 2, and 3. But when we first got the package, I was told, you know, you're going to be involved in this. And I said, please don't. Please don't. I want to stay on the course of doing sports that I know something about. I have uh, an ability to, to talk the language. Authenticity. I did that one baseball game, and um, Hank Aaron came up for his second at bat, and I said something along the lines. Well, now here comes Hank Aaron. You know, some would say the greatest baseball player of all time. Bum, bum. Yeah, whatever. That was a fine thing to say. He had the home run record at the time, the RBI record, the whole thing. And Mel Allen told me when we went to a break, he said, you know, you, want to, you might want to be, he was being very uh, protective of me. You might want to be careful about saying that about Hank Aaron. You know, there's another, you know, six or seven or eight or ten guys in this game who you could say the same thing about. And I said, uh, and I you know, thought for a minute, well, wait a minute, he did this, he did that. And then I thought, you know, Mel Allen's trying to help me here. Yeah. You know, well, he listen. thought that that yeah. comment, uh, was had gone too far just you know it was teetering on the edge of embellishment and here's a guy that would know that he wouldn't have said it that way and i thought holy smokes i am i'm i'm out i'm out of my comfort zone here and i appreciate it. i love mel allen for doing that but that was the last baseball game i ever called and i'm not ever going to add to it that that was it i retired that is not happening i retired again. in 1988 <laughs> okay i'm watching a lot of baseball seeing guys like joe buck do a great job and that's that's good enough for me do you do you uh, or you you talk about your great relationship with Tony? But have you ever found yourself broadcasting? Because I know I have broadcasting with somebody who's just off their game, and you've got to work with them, and you've got to leave them space. But it's just not working, and not gelling, and you just I've I've been very fortunate. You've been fortunate. I root so hard for the guy sitting next to uh, me. Well, you have to, right? I, I, He's I, your partner. You do, but your I, teammate. I sometimes when you're bringing a young guy along, yeah. Um, you find yourself almost taking your hands off the steering wheel, make sure they're buckled up, you know, and make sure, okay, you know, here's how we're going to do this. And I, I, you concern yourself so much with yeah. what they're doing that you almost forget the nuts and bolts of what you're supposed to do. But that's not a complaint. That's just a reality that yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm the, the experienced guy. Which is why it makes it so nice when you do find that good relationship. The thing with Tony we went into the CBS Broadcast Center 
months before our first real game. They took us into the broadcast center, second floor, and they popped the tape in. It was from a game the previous year. We didn't have any notes or anything, but it was just a real raw, let's walk through this thing. They, they, they roll the tape. We don't even know if a replay's coming up. We're not tipped off like you would be in a broadcast. A graphic's coming up or take us to commercial. We walked out of there, did three quarters of that game, and Sean McManus, our president, came over, chairman, and said, how was Tony? I said, he's ready to go on the air right now. Now, he's going to be better, and we can train more during the summer. But if what we did today is an was, and, and, you know, Sean's got to make the decision. If this, if this was on the air, what we did today, you would be Very over happy. the top happy. He's, he's, he's got the – and I, I always hesitate when people say <clears throat> you're a natural or something. So it sounds like you're not working at it. Right. So I don't want to ever compromise his work uh, effort. But we went through that summer and we did eight games total, either in person or off of a monitor that no one ever saw except our little group in our bubble, uh, Sean and uh, the crew back in New York and uh, our producer Jim Rickoff and Mike Arnold, our director. No one saw it until we unveiled it for real week one of the NFL season. And by halftime of that first game, he was whatever he was, 15 for 15 for, in foreshadowing and forecasting plays. And the, you know, the Romo... Uh, Express was on its way. <laughs> it's not slowing down ever, I don't believe. Jim, you're amazing. Great storyteller. There's, there's a couple of important things sure. you want to talk about. First of all, I think we, we, we have a we share a love of wine. Yes, I love and, it. And uh, I love the name of your wine, which is called The Calling, and it is a Pinot Noir. Now, the Pinot Noir is a thin-skinned grape. It yeah. comes from the Burgundy region of France. Um, and uh, this is from the Russian River Valley area. In and Sonoma, you know, in Lower Sonoma County, and a huge burgeoning area for Pinot. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this... Hey, this, I paid for that. You're gonna give you did? That, yeah, Thank so you very much. You're, so you're going to give that back to me. <laughs> What'd you take I that I take for? it on the plane with me today. <laughs> no. I'm having that tonight. <laughs> Have you had... Well, I, look I haven't tried it yet. I can't wait for you to try it. Yeah. Why, why uh, wine? I mean, I know you love good things. You said you I love, live you love in food. a world of, of, of dining out yes. 200 and something nights a year. I'm you're not in good look, shape for oh, that. Well, you're nice to say that. I, I, it's, I've got to be in a little better shape. <laughs> I need to look more like you. Um, I'm not hanging out in bars. I'm, I'm enjoying a great meal, yeah. a good bottle of wine, and good fellowship. And I saw a lot of the golfers that got involved in wine. Yeah. And... I wondered what that looked like. What was the effort level? Meaning, what was their involvement? How much did they know about it? Well, I felt like you know, confident in my ability to uh, be able to understand the wine industry if I was able to get into it one day. So I masqueraded as a, as a pretender, you know, all the while trying to train myself to get to that position one day to go ahead and launch into it. I went around the Sonoma and Napa and Carmel Valley, talked to vintners and found out there were any number of people who would be willing to sell you the juice, the grapes. And you could just put your label on yeah. it. Yeah, but like for me, before I was gonna buy the car, I needed to break it down and figure out how to build it back up, yep. what the process was like. And along, uh, well, 10 years ago, uh, I happened to be sitting in a restaurant in, in Connecticut and a guy stepped up to the table who had become eventually my my co-owner with this and a lifelong friend named Peter Deutsch and I recognized the name um, hugely successful 
importer, marketer, uh, distributor, creator of wine brands. And I happened to mention to him that I'm exploring this possibility. In fact, the next day I was I'm going to be in New York holding what I thought was an important meeting at the time about pursuing this. So I told him about how I envisioned this. I know a lot of people, great restaurants. I understand wine. I feel like that if some of these golfers are being successful at it, mm-hmm. I, I think we could be too. And he said, ultimately, he said, do you want your name on the label? What do you mean? He says, do you want this to be the Nance Chardonnay? I said, uh, if you thought it would help, I would do that. But my gut tells me that's the wrong play. Um, it doesn't read authentic to the consumer. They think it's a uh, an image play, just a a chance to increase their brand awareness or whatever. Or just make I money. Didn't, I didn't care. Yeah. yeah, I didn't care anything about that. I wanted to get into it for it to be successful and try to create something that was gonna be great, legendary, iconic someday. That's the goal. So anyway, we formed a partnership that runs strong. And uh, here we are since first going to market in 2012. So we're seven vintages into this. And now we're in 5,000 accounts nationally. We're all 50 states, and our Chardonnay the last two years has been ranked top 100 in the world. Now, there's a I lot of people that. out there that judging, a, you know, yeah, but, but it comes from those who really matter. Wine Spectator. Yeah. So um, it's, been, it's been getting tremendous reviews and reach, and um, we really enjoy it. It's a fun thing to go into Memphis and go into any number of restaurants and open up the wine list and, and see see, see the calling. calling there. Yeah, and the name, by the way, has to do with a lot of what we've talked about today. Yes, having a dream. Yeah, a calling. A calling is another word. At ten word years for old, it. or maybe yeah, even younger. That was my calling. Yeah, uh, when I was ten years old. I think you get a lot of callings in your life, whatever yeah. it might be. Uh, a calling to be the best husband you can be, the best father. It's a calling. It's an effort. It's a goal. It's a dream, and. Uh, this has been uh, a wonderful blessing in our lives. We've had a lot of fun with it, and it's going to outlive us all. Legacy is something you talk about a lot, and you and and you talk about what you got from your dad, and um, you you wrote a book. I mean, uh, your dad suffered from Alzheimer's, and it, it absolutely uh, crippling, devastating uh, condition that we've all been exposed to in some way or another, or in any family. Uh, Tell us about the book, and, and and then now you do a lot of work in terms of raising funds and awareness for Alzheimer's. Well, the, the book was the single best thing that I ever did professionally, if you want to count that as part of my professional life. It's called Always By My Side. Now, the book, I'm not trying to sell anybody a book. It came out in 2008. It was the number one selling sports category book even though it really wasn't a sports book at all, but for that year, 2008, in the United States, it made the New York Times bestseller list week one. I never could have imagined to be that kind of reaction. Why do you think it resonated with people? I think first off there was the fact that it was a story about a a, a son and his love for his father. Yeah. And how a family coped with the leader of the family being debilitated by this uh, insidious disease. And it had a lot of sports backdrop to it. What it was was a look at my life with my dad riding shotgun with me figuratively. It happened to be as a backdrop a year that I had a Super Bowl Final Four Masters sequence over Which the has course happened of to you 63 days. Twice? That's happened now 
five times. Five times. Five times. It happens every third year. Right, but I mean, we they, alternate. You've called them all that time. Five. Yeah, I've also hosted it twice. So it actually, it's happened seven times, but five occasions since the book yeah. of doing the Super Bowl, the Final Four, and the Masters. So it's a sixty-three day travel log. Mm. Amazing journey, amazing race to uh, all these great championships of American sport and finding my father in certain scenarios, mm. running into Tony Dungy, the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts, who I admire so much, and seeing the way he led the Colts the year that I wrote the book to a Super Bowl title through inspiration, not intimidation. And my dad had been a football coach. That's the way he would have coached. He wouldn't have screamed and demeaned anyone along the way. He would have been a source of encouragement, the way Tony coached. To see Arnold Palmer and see the way he interacted with people uh, during that 63-day window, there were several occasions I was in Arnie's company. My dad, had he ever been famous, his way he would have treated his crowd, his audience. He would have been gracious. He would have given back. He wouldn't have been rushed. So that's what the book was about, was seeing my father, but at the same time having the the truths about how hard it was and how debilitating it was for him. Anyway, the book had an audience, and um, I realized within a couple of years of the feedback, walking out of the booth and people being there, bringing the book and telling me their own story that was so similar to ours, I needed to do something bigger and better than just showing up at the greatest uh, sporting event and having the best seat in the house. So my wife and I agreed that we were going to write the first of many checks, but to go down to Houston, where the Houston um, Texas Medical Center is, home of MD Anderson Cancer Center, the DeBakey Heart Institute. We wanted to build something to Houston bigger and better than anything had ever been built in Houston. At a neurological institute, we wanted to build the best Alzheimer's research facility that Houston will ever know, and we wanted to name it for my father. So in 2011, we opened the Nance National Alzheimer's Center. And uh, it's an ongoing life mission. We're, uh, we're thrilled that uh, we've been able to recruit, build, and, um, and, and, and really have a presence in the, in, in, for a worldwide audience for what we're doing in Houston. I'm not a scientist, so I'm always careful when I'm out trying to tell the story and use my platform and help raise money. I'm not a scientist, but I do know that there's hope. It's not false hope that we're going to move in on this thing in the next five years and find a way to treat, which will ultimately lead to a cure. A firewall, I'm going to mm -hmm. use some layman terms on this. Somebody's diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. Before it gets activated into full-blown Alzheimer's, it changes from an amyloid beta protein overload that starts to engulf the brain and transitions to a thing called tau, T-A-U. Before it gets to tau, you can hopefully, we're gonna be able to stop that progression. You can still function a pretty normal life at early onset. You can still, even though you're forgetful, you can still drive, shower, you know, you, you can still lead a normal life. My hope, my, my prayer is that in the next five years, that's going to be the step that's going to start all the dominoes falling down. And it, yeah. it, can, it can absolutely cripple uh, uh, the, the, the whole you know, medical uh, structure of a, of a family uh, and, and even crippling on a larger scale to the, the whole healthcare system for, for countries. 
yeah. and is trying to maintain uh, a dignity and a life and a presence. And dignity is, I think, uh, it's a big word with, big with word Alzheimer's. With Alzheimer's. But I'm, I'm optimistic that we said when we opened it, before I took my last breath, I wanted to see the opponent that defeated my dad. I wanted to be defeated. And I think we will. I think we we're going to see this thing soon. Jim, where can people go to? Nancefriends.org, N-A-N-T-Z, mm -hmm. friends.org. They want to read more about it. Uh, now, these ties that you wear, is that tied in, so to speak? It is. To that was just another play of trying to create uh, I love awareness. the ties. It's it, it, a forget-me-not flower design. Yes, and the forget-me-not flower, right. Yeah, and I just thought there was a richness in the forget-me-not theme. Right. We've taken the forget-me-not collection. Yes. And all my proceeds, 100% of what you know would be profit on this thing for me, go to go to the Nance Center for Alzheimer's And can Alzheimer's you order research. the ties on That's the on vineyardvines.com. Okay. It's massively successful, and people in the Alzheimer's world support it greatly. It actually triggered another relationship, just trying to yes. follow an entrepreneurial heart with wine and the Alzheimer's Center, but it led eventually to uh, having a collaboration with Vineyard Vines on a new golf line that just debuted here in 2019. The first year, the reaction inside the golf community, hopefully yes. the golf viewer trusts me. They know that I'm all golf, yeah. passionate about the sport. I try I'm to sure tap I'm sure you're in. legit at this point, Jim, well, when it comes to golf. Well, what is your handicap? Just oh, to it's tell not people. good. Yeah. <laughs> not good. Where are it you at roughly? Right is, that, is that a secret? It's not my, today, I think you can look up anyone's on oh, the Oh, you can? I think okay. you can. So where are you at? Uh, my index. You know, you got to go to an index and then do the equation on it. I'd be about a 12 handicap now. That's good golf. Ugh, it doesn't Come feel on, so that's good. good golf. And when I was at college, I could play significantly better than that. And the problem is, is people think that I can play better than that. So really? the expectation level I can never meet. Well, you're such an authority that people just assume, oh, he's got to be scratch. You know? and that's what they think. Yeah. And I get up on the first tee and rope hook one out of bounds. Ah, oh, that's funny. <laughs> do that again. Yeah, they think I'm like some sort of trick shot, but that's my real game. You know what, I, I, I do love that you do something for charity. I wish there were more well-known people who did just a little something. Uh, I set a goal to, to raise a million dollars for a charity in, in my life, which we collectively managed to do for, awesome. for MS. But yeah, I, I really admire that you've done that, you and your wife, just to, to, to give back. And obviously it's very personal for you, but um, we're driven, is all I can tell you. Oh, you are. It is a calling. It is another driven. calling in my life, is it, and Courtney's life, our lives, to figure, to, to be on the team that's going to push as much positivity yeah. and, and money and awareness into the right direction to one day make a difference. Beautiful. Well, I, I end the podcast, uh, Jim, with a, a question about taking a road trip. Three people that you would take oh boy. in a car on a road trip. Three people from any time in history. I'd probably make this trip mm -hmm. uh, a golf getaway. Okay. So, because it'd be easy as a father of three to say, well, I'd throw my three kids in there. I'm going to have former President Bush, 41. Was he a good friend of your dad's, right? He was a friend of really a great mentor and surrogate father to me. To you. To me. Dear, dear friend. Uh, unbelievably uh, important, vital part of my life. Love the man. This had nothing to do being introduced through politics, anything like that. My f relationship with that family is something that's a treasure to me. Uh, great American, by the way, and beloved, uh, you know, uh, in his later years, to see the reaction people had 
for 41. I'm sure you saw the funeral yeah. and the outpouring there. Yeah, the outpouring was amazing. And uh, I would put 41. I would put uh, Arnold Palmer, who uh, I got uh, asked to deliver a eulogy at his funeral. He's another surrogate. Okay. And again, I'm going to keep family out of it because I'd like my dad to be on that trip. Right. Um, Separate trip. And I'm going to put Ken Venturi on there, my longtime partner. Ken uh, looked after me like an, like another one of his sons. He has two great sons, Matt and Tim. But Ken passed away on my birthday in 2013. Ken and Arnold had a falling out at the 1958 Masters over a ruling that ended up being a favorable ruling for Arnold. I'm not saying it was right or wrong, just it was the ruling that Arnold needed uh, on an embedded ball on the 12th hole. And although Arnold never harbored any kind of uh, uh, resentment. resentment for anybody in his life, Kenny had a hard time letting go of that. He did. And it ate him alive. And late in his life, he ended up having a five-way bypass. Basically, he was giving it. He wasn't given a new heart, but he was given a new lease on life. And one of my greatest thrills, and I wrote it in the very last chapter of Always By My Side, was down at Bel Air Country Club. I threw a night uh, before the membership, replaying the 1960 Masters. I had it colorized. You know that treatment like yes. the Turner Films yeah. did in the library? I colorized the 1960 Masters, which had been broadcast in black and white. Paid for it out of my own pocket um, and replayed the broadcast and it played before the final round of the Masters in 2007. We had the world premiere, so to speak, at Bel Air Country Club. Arnold flew in for it, and I had Ken come too. Ken was the runner-up uh, that year, co-runner-up with Al Finsterwald. So anyway, I knew Arnold would not have a problem with it, but I wanted Kenny. I to felt let like go. he's got a new lease on life, and for him now to move forward, he needed to let go of it. We needed closure. And I got up on that stage. I mean, I almost get tearful thinking about it because I love both of these men. And uh, I, I had both of them come up, and I didn't know how Ken was going to handle that. And he walked up like Muhammad Ali used to, like he kind of looked like he was going to punch you. You know, he had that back playful, and forth with Howard playful. Cosell back in the day and whole thing. Yeah. And he walked up like, hmm, and he looked at Arnold, and he gave him a hug. The room jumped to its feet. And... Uh, and Kenny said, you know, these players today, Tiger, Phil, all of them, they're out there playing for millions. He says, you know why? They have one guy to thank right here. Arnold, thank you for what you've done for the game. Wow. One of my greatest, I felt like, achievements in my life that. is I was able to get, again, Arnold was a guy that had such a huge heart, loved everybody. And Ken just had a hard time of letting go of something that happened almost 50 years before. I'm glad you were able to do that. Jim, I have one last question, sure. which is I want to ask you what you would do with your last day on earth if you knew you were going to be living your last day well, on earth. Well, I would, uh, I would, I would try to celebrate you know, the many blessings that I've had. So I would want to have my greatest blessings around me. So that would be uh, a call out to my family and, um, uh, We'd sit around and, and um, have a little prayer together and then hopefully have a, a great meal 
Chase with a little calling wine. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Buy the calling wine now. <laughs> no, the we're 2016 not. 2016 <laughs> Pinot Noir. No, I, listen, I can't tell you. I'm really, this is, is this a good I think year? I will enjoy it. That's a great year. Mm-hmm. And I love Pinot Noir great. Yeah. If people haven't tried Pinot Noir, then. Oh, it's a, it's a, calling. right now. It's a, it's a Do you varietal want to just talk, right now that's, that's going imagine crazy. Imagine we're live on air. We're going to talk out until the, the card just <laughs> runs out and it'll just go. <laughs> Don't forget, 60 Minutes is coming up next. Yes. Followed by Amazing Race. Jim, could That's you give me That's all America's number one network, CBS. Jim, could you give me a, 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 hi, I'm Jim Nance, and you're listening to me on <laughs> the Bucket Podcast, something like that? Hello, friends. Jim Nance here, and it's a pleasure to be a part with my great friend Phil here on Bucket Podcast. Hope you enjoy. Excellent. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To see more great interviews, go to philcogan.com and subscribe to Bucket with Phil Kogan wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider rating and reviewing us. And follow Bucket, that's Bucket with an I-T, on Instagram and Facebook. Also, follow me on Twitter, at Phil Kogan. Today's podcast proudly brought to you by Bucket Nutrition. Great-tasting, high-performance nutrition to power your adventure. Don't forget to go to Amazon.com, search for Bucket Nutrition, and use promo code BUCKET10, that's Bucket with an IT, and you'll get a 10% discount on all Bucket Nutritional products. Just wait until you try the Bucket Booster with Manuka Honey.